want to uh, the special W here on seminar. My name is Julian Savalescu, um, and uh, it's a great pleasure to, to welcome uh, Associate Professor Rob Sparrow from Monash University, a future fellow. Um, Rob will talk for about 40 minutes, and then there will be about 20 minutes for questions, and then we'll go straight over to our second speaker. Um, and the title is Enhancement and Obsolescence. Thank you, Julian. Um, so this is the last day of a um, very rewarding but also gruelling week of talking non-stop about human enhancement. So I'm a bit croaky, uh, for which uh, my apologies. Uh, I'd like to thank um, Julian for the invitation uh, to present here and also uh, Miriam Wood for facilitating uh, the visit. So this paper is intended to introduce some considerations uh, to the debate about human enhancement that, to my knowledge, uh, are not currently present uh, in the literature. I don't for, for a moment think that I'm giving a knockdown objection to human enhancement, and indeed I want to concede up front that the argument uh, is only relevant to a certain category uh, of enhancements. Uh, I will suggest that it gives the argument if the bit that I want to work works, that it gives some reasons that are relevant to public policy. I want to say, actually, there are some reasons to collectively resist the introduction of a very specific uh, class of enhancements. But it's not an argument against uh, enhancement uh, per se. So what I want to argue is that continuous rapid improvement in a certain class of enhancement technologies uh, would actually be a bad thing and would give us the mere fact that the technology was improving rapidly and continuously would give us a reason uh, to collectively restrict access to a certain class of enhancements. So the central intuition here is to imagine buying a laptop computer or a mobile phone. Because we all know that from the moment that you buy that piece of equipment, it rapidly starts going uh, out of date. Uh, that the cutting-edge technology now uh, actually becomes almost useless uh, 10 years uh, down the track. And then where I'm going to go with that is imagine if that was you. Imagine if you had chosen a particular enhancement and discovered that it was only good for a few years and after that uh, you were obsolete, uh, that you couldn't participate in various social practices because you were left behind by this uh, advancing uh, technological front of technological uh, development. Um, so let me begin by observing that because when it comes down to it, our current enhancement technologies are in some sense pretty lame. You know, there's caffeine, nicotine, amphetamines, and laptops and mobile phones. To make the enhancement debate exciting, people have to postulate rapid technological improvement. You have to say, look, we can't do anything terribly exciting now. But in 10 years' time, imagine what we'll be able to do. So the enhancement debate, or at least the big chunk of it, is premised on the idea that enhancement technologies are going to improve and keep in, presumably keep improving. So we're going to see rapid, continuing technological uh, improvement. For reasons of time, I'm not going to list all the different technologies where this claim is made, but I want to highlight uh, genetic selection of embryos using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That's one Julie and I have been debating that for a while. Uh, direct genetic modification of human beings, and also um, 
neural implants and stem cell therapies. These are all technologies that have been proposed as offering significant benefits to future human beings. But to get there, you have to assume that things are going to change from where, uh, where they are now. So I'm going to assume that it will be possible to enhance human beings in a significant way using one or all of those technologies, but also that those technologies will undergo rapid and continuing uh, improvement. So if you don't get rapid, essentially this argument that I'm going to make is not going to work if the rate of technological pro uh, progress in enhancement technology is too slow. So think about the progress in psychiatry, uh, for instance, which is essentially pretty slow, uh, versus the uh, progress in consumer electronics, which is uh, relatively rapid. Um, and it's only the rapid technologies where this argument I'm going to make uh, will take hold. Now, of course, if you um, think that not only technological changes, that it's not only going to be rapid, but it's going to become exponential, then perhaps we get to a singularity, and this argument is not going to work uh, if there's a singularity. But the problem with singularities is all bets are off. You can basically just wave your hands and say whatever you want, because who knows, if all the laws of history cease to apply, uh, we can say whatever we like. So I'm just simply, I'm going to assume... Uh, rapid continuing progress uh, that doesn't generate a singularity. And so again, I'm, I'm being quite careful here to delimit the scope uh, of the argument. So um, there's not been, to my knowledge, no one's paid attention to this phenomenon. What would it be like if technology was like that? And you only got one shot at enhancement. And that's the other key premise here, is that some enhancement technologies will be one-shot options. Uh, so for some technologies, you might simply update them. So if we become enhanced by having cooler exoskeletons, then presumably there's no reason why you can't just buy a better exoskeleton every couple of years. And maybe if we're taking really good amphetamines uh, and a new amphetamine comes onto the market, we can simply change our drug re regime. So for some enhancements, uh, there'll be no question about becoming obsolete. But for a number of, I think, the most promising enhancement uh, technologies, um, you will only get one shot, and therefore if the technology continues to improve, uh, you will become obsolete. So most obviously, any embryo manipulations, so PGD, you imagine you undergo PGD for enhancement now, and you get a child who you can get a certain improvement in capacities, uh, but had you waited five years, the range, the number of genes that have been identified as providing enhancements would have increased. Uh, so children born after your child will actually be more enhanced than your child. This is also likely to be uh, true if we're using recombinant DNA technology. So the package of genes that one can deliver in genetically modifying one's child will presumably get better and better and better. So if you are genetically modified at a particular historical moment, people born after you will have better, will have superior uh, enhancements. Now, anything that relies upon kind of neural plasticity during childhood uh, might also uh, have this structure. So think about cochlear implants uh, or, and other neural implants which rely heavily upon neural plasticity in the developing brain. So you can have an implant when you're a child 
that you can learn to use to its full effectiveness, but later neural implants, you'll never succeed as well. So again, the things that your parents do to you before you're five will stick. And after that, uh, you may not get an option uh, to upgrade. Um, it's also possible that some forms of neural prosthetic or sort of body modification will also uh, have this structure. So think about, I get a USB drive, you know, placed into the top of my spinal column. Uh, but having done that, I can't upgrade to Firewire because they've uh, scarred the nervous tissue there. Uh, okay, so, and this is already true for surgeries, that sometimes if you've had one generation of surgery, it's, you're ruined for the successive generations of surgery. The damage to the structures of your body is such that you only get one shot uh, at the surgery. Um, it's even possible that some drugs might induce a chemical dependency such that you can't come off the enhancement and go on to the better one. And notice that the safety implications of updating your drug regime every five years, that's going to be very hard to show that that's safe. So there might be reasons to stick with the enhancement pill that you were prescribed when you were 20. And even though new pills came out, it's not safe to, um, to update them. Now, of course, if there's all this enhancement going on, you'll be able to get other enhancements. Uh, what I'm interested in, though, is these particular technological interventions that change your capacities and then leave you stuck with the, with the capacities available at that particular uh, moment in history. It's possible that there's a financial version of this. I mean, if you imagine you have to spend all your money to get a cutting-edge enhancement, and having done that, you can't afford to get uh, you, you can only afford to buy a cutting-edge enhancement once. Presumably all these enhancement technologies will become cheaper and cheaper. So what was cutting-edge, the price will come down. But if you want to move to the forefront, maybe you only get one option uh, at doing that, short of sort of radical social subsidy of enhancement technologies. Anyway, I think there's a case that there's a class of enhancements that will become, that will render you liable to obsolescence. And what I want to explore for the remainder of this presentation uh, is <laughs> what reasons that would give you in relation to the collective process of enhancement. And also what would society look like if people are sort of enhancing themselves and then rapidly actually sliding to the bottom of the social heap. Um, so, um, the take-home message is I think this would massively intensify social competition in ways that we should regret. What I want you to imagine is that you only have, currently you've got say 20 years of social and political participation before you become too obsolete. Okay, there's already a process of cultural obsolescence. You know, there are things on Facebook that I can't do. Uh, you know, future technologies I'll never be as good at as my children. But you can sort of hang in there at the forefront of uh, social and political debate for maybe 20 or 30 years at the moment. But if your employer is relying upon you to have a state-of-the-art you know, neural implant uh, and people who are three years younger than you have a much better neural implant, I want you to imagine that this space at which you are at the peak of your sort of capacities is compressed to two or three years, maybe five years. And that's the main social consequence that I think that would flow uh, from this, that uh, once you're older than 25, 20-year-olds 20 are so much better than you that you can't get any of the good jobs 
uh, anymore. Um, now, of course, this I know this notion that uh, enhancement technology will generate rat races is a familiar one, and I will say a bit about you know competition for positional goods. Uh, but I want to argue that this argument I'm making is distinct from the traditional concerns about you know red queens races or uh, the sort of things that uh, Gregory Kafka was writing back back in 1994, saying the pursuit of positional good through enhancements uh, would be dangerous. Um, I want to say, look, no one's mentioned, to my knowledge, has spoken about obsolescence yet. I think there are some in interesting subjective costs associated with what it would be like to know that you are obsolete, to feel that you are obsolete. I do want to acknowledge that um, uh, there would be positional losses associated with, uh, with falling down the sort of um, the, the scale of available enhancements as you get older, as younger people get better and better, more and more enhanced than you, there would be a loss of positional uh, goods involved there. Um, and I think that loss of positional goods is generated even if your motivation for pursuing enhancement is actually the absolute goods of enhancement. Okay, so traditionally, rats races or rat races or arms races are identified where you want to be you want to have more of a good than people around you. So whether what you experience is a good thing or not depends upon what other people have. But one of the reasons why you might want to become more intelligent is not because you want to be more intelligent than the people around you, but simply because it's good to be intelligent. But of course, in a situation where everyone else is getting more and more intelligent, you may still suffer very significant positional disadvantages, even though your motivations were the pursuit of the absolute uh, benefit. Um, I think this dilemma I'm describing is especially profound if you're imagining enhancing your children, uh, and that's interesting. And finally, I think that out of all of this, you could get an argument to collectively resist the process of continuing uh, enhancement. Um, so I've already mentioned what I'm going to describe as the objective cost of enhancement, which is essentially the peak of your powers. The, the, the period at which you are capable of sort of participating at the forefront of social uh, events is rapidly compressed. So that you've got five years to earn enough money to you know, set yourself up for the rest of life before you can't get a job you know, in the philosophy department or the public service or wherever you like because the younger people are so much better, uh, better than you. Now, of course... Um, because this will happen, presumably this will happen um, continuously, you will remain better. You will have superior capacities to those people who were born before you. But all of you will be getting worse and worse relative to the next uh, generation. So it's not like you're suddenly going to end up on the scrap heap. And you can assume that if you're enhanced relative to us, say, but not as enhanced as relative to the next generation, um, there would be some advantages there. But I suspect that the, the overall social consequence of being <coughs> excluded from um, uh, full social and political participation would actually be negative. So I think that's quite a, a bad thing. Um, it's also worth noticing that in some cases, uh, an obsolete enhancement technology simply actually leaves you worse off than you were uh, 
than you were without it. So think about a generation that doesn't learn to read. This is probably already happening, uh, has happened to me with spelling and spell checkers. Okay, I rely upon an enhancement to spell. But then you imagine that my computer can no longer connect to the internet because they're all using you know, Firewire 48B and my spell checker ceases to work. I'm actually worse off than I would have been had I learned to spell in the first place. So you could take an enhancement that, uh, and as a result of that enhancement, not develop what we currently consider to be our ordinary capacities. And then when your enhancement ceases to function, and remember technologies are systems here, okay? You can't find the batteries for neural implant anymore, or the you know, communications protocol that you're using to connect your head to the web change, and, and you can no longer access the you know, inter-head web. Um, so it's possible that some of these enhancements, as they become obsolete, will cease to function altogether. And if, as a result of the process of enhancement, you haven't learnt some important skills, you might actually be absolutely worse off uh, than you were uh, before you accessed this enhancement. There's a couple of, I think, um, important social or well, subjective costs. So I've talked about what I take to be some objective costs, which is how your structure of your life and your access to various social benefits changes independently of your desires. Now I want to talk about how we might feel if we knew that we had become obsolete. So one thing uh, that might happen is we might suffer from very significant option regret. This already sort of happens with mobile phones. You know, if you've got uh, like an old mobile phone, someone's got a shiny new mobile phone, you sort of wish, maybe I, I should have waited. You know, if you have that experience, you buy Apple's products just before they announce the new range. There's a subjective uh, uh, cost uh, there. Now, um, enhancements, enhancements are actually good. So it's... You, there's this, well, looking at a weird uh, phenomenon where you actually are objectively better than you off before you had the enhancement. So having got the enhancement, your situation is improved, but you're also conscious that had you waited, you would have got, you, your situation would be even better. Now, depending upon how inclined you are to option regret, you might actually suffer a significant cost to your well-being by cursing the fact that you're stuck with this old obsolescent uh, technology. Um, I actually think the enhancement debate encourages this. I mean, the whole enhancement debate is about how wonderful it will be to be enhanced. Isn't it great to be better, better, better? And if then, taking that seriously, you grab an enhancement and then you just watch everyone sail past you, it's going to be quite hard not to think, oh, I wish I'd waited till those new set of genes uh, became, became available. We might also experience significant status anxiety as well. So this is not just... The option regret is I could have been better had I waited. Had I waited for five years, you know, I would have had a much better neural implant. I would have had... Had I waited five years to enhance my child, they would have had three heads instead of only two. Um, so um, the option regret is essentially focused on a counterfactual relating to your own well-being. We might also experience uh, significant status anxiety. So this is relative to other people. 
we might resent the fact that other people are significant, particularly people who are younger than us, are significantly better off than us by virtue of having better enhancements. We've got the old one, the new one is so much better, and we develop a, um, a status anxiety. And again, I think there's um, reasons to think that in a society in which enhancement was sort of widely adopted, uh, people's status would be connected to their enhancements. Uh, so I think status anxiety is a, a, real, uh, a real possibility. So let me talk now about um, positional and absolute goods. So traditionally, people who want to be, for instance, people recognise that if your desire is to be taller than average, and everyone is trying to be taller than average, that's a, a futile pursuit of a positional good. We can't all be taller than average. If you want your child to be taller than average and everyone else is pursuing the same thing, uh, the same number of children will end up being taller than average uh, and everyone has spent a whole lot of money on enhancement technology. So this is one of the traditional arguments for regulation uh, of access to particular uh, positional goods to avoid getting caught up in this... Um, uh, this sort of, sort of futile uh, arms race. Now, I think if everybody else is getting enhancements, and furthermore, those enhancements are getting better and better, more and more powerful, you will be, um, you'll have to be quite brave to resist enhancement. So a concern for positional advantage and disadvantage is likely to drive the pursuit of enhancement. Um, but the dangers of what I'm calling an enhanced rat race are not solely the result of the pursuit of the positional good. Now again, to recap what I said earlier, I don't want to be more intelligent than the people around me. I simply want to be more intelligent. And that's great. I'm more, I can read more poetry, do more maths, and that's, I'm objectively better off. But if I'm in a society where younger people are now have significantly superior capacities because they have had access to a better enhancement technology and I haven't, uh, I may end up as a result of positional disadvantage worse off even though I'm enjoying my absolute benefit. Uh, so because the consequences of an enhanced rat race lead to positional disadvantage, even those people who are motivated by the absolute good may actually end up being worse, uh, worse off. Um, okay. I'm racing through this, so we'll have lots of time for discussion. I might try to slow down a little bit. Um, one interesting, so here's a couple of interesting observations about how obsolescence relates to other issues that people are talking about in the enhancement debate. Um, if we're enhancing life expectancy, the consequences of obsolescence are going to be especially bad. The longer we live, the longer we live with an obsolete set, uh, set of capacities. Now think about life expectancy technology. Um, that is a sort of one-shot option. So maybe it's performed through you know, a gene therapy when you're young. Okay, so my child has a life expectancy of 120, which is wonderful. But had I waited five years, they would have had a life expectancy of 140. Another 10 years, you know, 170. 
Um, I suspect the <laughs> the option regret is going to end up being a very significant like knowing that other while I'm living longer than people used to, other people are living much longer than me uh, is going to be a significant cause of both option regret and status anxiety. And of course, the longer I live, the longer I'll experience uh, experience those things. So. Um, some of these problems seem to me... Again, some life expectancy technologies you'll be able to update. So it depends upon how you think uh, we're going to be extending life expectancy. But if it's a kind of one-shot treatment uh, and it's continuously improving, then I think there's, uh, there's some real issues there. I've already mentioned the possibility that this is going to bite... This dilemma will bite especially hard in relation to our children. Okay, it's already a case that you know the longer because your child's welfare is significantly determined by your income, the longer you leave having children, presuming a normal sort of income progress, the better off your child will be, up until the point where you suddenly discover that you can't have children. Okay, so there's already a sort of question about when you should have children. Now imagine that the package of enhancements that you have access to is changing rapidly. So there's never be a right moment to have kids because were you to wait, they would always end up with uh, superior, um, superior capacities. So that dilemma, I think, is going to be especially profound when it comes to enhancements that uh, involve children. Now, I think that what we have here is essentially a traditional collective action problem uh, where... I think it's rational to prefer not to live in a world that is subject to an enhanced rat race. So collectively we might say we're all better off if, we're, if we fix our capacities at some point, rather if we're exposed to obsolescence by allowing these enhancements to be continually upgraded. But of course, if other people are doing it, it's rational to get on. Okay, you don't want to be left with, your, with whatever set of capacities are available at that particular historical moment if other people are getting access to um, better and better uh, capacities. So it's a traditional case, it's all or none. You know, I think you might get an argument for saying collectively we want to restrict access uh, and probably restrict research into technologies that would generate an enhanced rat race. Now some people don't believe that you can restrict research or you can restrict technologies. Uh, if that's true, we shouldn't be having debates about regulation of enhancement uh, at all. Uh, then a whole lot of the enhancement debate is just pointless because if you think that we've got no regulatory options, uh, we might as well just wait and see. If you think we have got regulatory options, one option would be to say uh, we don't want to see uh, every generation, uh, every five years, a significant improvement in our children's capacities. Uh, for instance, because we know that while that's attractive, because my child will have better capacities, because relative to the su subsequent generation, they'll actually be worse off, the total impact will be negative. Um, so I think you might get um, an argument against one-shot enhancements in the context of continuing uh, technological improvement from concerns about obsolescence. Uh, did you want us to talk for...
40 minutes or half an hour drawing? No, 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 I think you know, you better have more time for questions. So okay, all right. Like I'll just day. mention, um, because it relates to something that um, Chris was talking about uh, uh, at a conference last week, I'll just point out that there's some interesting uh, relationships here to Alan Buchanan's discussion of network effects in his book Beyond Humanity. So Alan Buchanan makes the point that uh, lots of enhancements uh, actually have positive benefits for people around you. Okay, so it's better to live, even if I'm not enhanced, it's better to live in a community where some people are enhanced because the benefits that their enhancements generate will, some, will trickle down or, or sort of uh, suffuse out uh, into the community. Um, so he, he makes this argument in the con uh, to claim that it's silly to be worried so much about positional disadvantage. You've got to also look at the absolute benefits that would flow from having in, in engaging in enhancement enterprise, as he describes it. Um, but what's interesting about obsolescence is that it's one of the things that prevents network effects from being realised. Uh, it's one of, if you think about the ways in which, for instance, you're sometimes stuck with an obsolete technology due to network effects. Okay, so a, a particular technology becomes widespread, and because it's widespread, it's widely adopted. In fact, you can't afford not to adopt it, even though better technologies become available. Okay, and when someone releases a better technology, it sputters and dies. Uh, because the early adopters don't benefit from the network effects. This is essentially Microsoft. You know, we're stuck in Microsoft Word. We're stuck with a bad product simply because it's so uh, widespread. But you also get, um, you can also be forced out of social and political participation by network effects. And we've all had this experience too, when um, there comes a time when you can't open the latest Word document. Okay, you've got a perfectly good computer and it's doing everything you want it, but because everyone else has upgraded, you cease to function uh, in that uh, particular uh, technological uh, ecology. So there's a complex... It's hard to know. I can't say too much about this because there's a complex empirical question here about whether the sort of... the benefits from those people who are pushing forwards with their, uh, their new enhancements to the rest of us outweigh the fact that we are essentially locked out of collab social collaboration with those people by virtue of obsolescence. But there's at least an interesting issue here that um, the argument that Buchanan makes about network effects is not as powerful as he thinks once you admit the possibility uh, of obsolescence. Um, all right, so I think um, I think we might collectively decide to um, avoid an enhanced rat race by um, trying to restrict access to certain sorts of uh, enhancement technologies that have this structure. Uh, I think there's a um, because almost all of these enhancements will have to be installed or made available through the medical profession, and the medical <coughs> profession is already highly regulated, uh, I think there's a real opportunity there to, uh, to regulate. I think the problem of regulation is not as profound uh, as one might think. Interstate is a different issue, but within the country, black market medicine 
uh, is less of a problem than one, uh, one might think, the exception of abortion, uh, of course. But um, uh, the medical prof there are resources within the way we already regulate medicine to regulate access to some of these, uh, these enhancements. Now, I don't think, again, I don't think this is a knockdown argument against enhancement. It doesn't work if enhancement is slow, because uh, then I suspect you might put up with a working life of 20 years, uh, for instance, uh, if other benefits were flowing uh, to you. Uh, and it doesn't work if enhancement is too rapid, and it doesn't work if we can upgrade our enhancements. But if there's a class of enhancements where um, you've got rapid, continuing uh, improvement and you only get one shot at it and you can't upgrade, then I think the rational thing to do might be to get together and say, we don't want this particular social dynamic. I will stop there because I'm getting more and more croaky and that should give us some issues okay. to discuss. So, questions? Uh, Alright, uh, your argument seems to be based on the idea that once humans are being enhanced, they can be upgraded. So, my question is whether it's really against enhancement or it is against we don't have a kind of open standard for upgrading humans, mm. so to speak. So, if we have regulation, why don't we just have a regulation on the kind of standard we have on this technology? instead of just going against it. Yeah, no, I, I, so I think that's good. I think in some cases that is precisely the solution we should <coughs> adopt. But it's also very hard to future-proof technologies. It's very hard to ensure uh, that um, no one will be left behind as a result of technological improvement. This is very clear for the things that we do to children. Okay, so anything that you do in utero any genetic, um, any genetic modification, you simply won't be able to achieve the same uh, modifications later in life. I mean, you can do gene therapy later in life, but you won't be able to, you know, um, add genes for photosynthesis. Uh, you won't be able to add your longevity genes uh, if uh, once the child's, you know, past the blastocyst uh, stage. So in some cases, I simply think that solution won't work. And again, lots of the surgical options, it's very hard to anticipate what future surgery is going to be like. So you get your neural implant, it's true you can upgrade the device, but what you can't do is give you back the bit of the brain that it was supposed to plug into that has been destroyed by the first surgery. So yeah, I think that's a partial solution, but I don't think it uh, will avoid the problem. So uh, the, uh, the order that I saw them was uh, Guy, Rebecca, and Stuart Owen. Right, yeah. So can we also name names? Because I um, it's, it's, no, 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 it's no, good. Guys, next. It's good for me to meet people in this group. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm going. Yeah, so that that that's a pretty, was really interesting. Right, because some move you made was a bit connected to the previous claim that was a big arch. So essentially, you spent a lot of time defending this interesting claim that if certain kind of enhancement you move too fast, it mm -hmm. will become obsolete. That's overall the bad. Then you said, therefore, we should restrict enhancement. And that's a weird inference. <laughs> no, it follows that we should not enhance things too quickly. Uh, we should enhance it slower. That's the immediate thing that falls from the argument. No? Now, 
you might think it's hard to regulate, but you know, if we can regulate things in a way that prevents enhancement generally, we probably can regulate in a way that just makes things sufficiently <coughs> low cost. Yeah. Okay. And that kind of two other reasons for thinking that's better. So one is simply if you imagine a company sells cell phone that everybody knows will be obsolete in a few years. That's a terrible business model. People will be terribly upset. They wouldn't buy it, they would protest. So if there's an interest, so people will develop enhancement whether it's governments or companies or whatever to avoid that kind of problem, which is a general problem. So they need to have some kind of model that makes it attractive to the people who buy. So that's already going to be within the dynamic, it's likely to be a constraint that people will recognize. And then the second point is just that current status already involves some people are obsolete in some way. Mm -hmm. Just they never became obsolete, but they just have lower cognitive capacity. They cannot get some kind of jobs and, and engage some kind of social interaction, etc. So they are, they are, if you keep the status quo, these people are already suffering from that problem anyway. Yes. Um so I, I, I want to concede a lot of what you've just argued. So I do think um, clearly our existing rate of technological progress is leaving some people uh, behind, uh, but I don't think it's as rapid. I mean, so this argument is really targeted at a particular spectrum of the possible future histories of enhancement. And then I simply want to say that's a likely spectrum, given what you need to say to make the enhancement debate interesting at all, given how actually few enhancements, meaningful enhancements. Uh, we have that modify the body rather than uh, external devices. Um, now, I, I would also insist, however, that it might well have been rational for those people who are currently being left behind by technological progress or simply by the existence of jobs requiring certain cognitive skills that they don't have to resist that. That, that had the collective choice been made uh, people with cognitive impairments might well have said, we're going to be worse off in a society where access to uh, computing technology is essential to full uh, political participation. But I think they would have lost that vote. What's interesting about the scenario I'm describing is that everyone can see that they will be worse off. I mean, Grant, I, mean, I agree, we have to debate whether they really would be worse off, uh, but you could actually get a super majority to say, I don't want to be left behind by future generations, so I'm going to regulate. Now, as to whether we should be regulating the speed uh, or the existence of, uh, of the technology, I think that's a good point. I, I guess I, I, am, I, I, I don't want to say we can't regulate, and obviously this argument relies upon regulation, but I think there are reasons to think that regulating uh, broad brush regulation is more effective than trying to fine-tune regulation in the way that you describe. But yes, if we could be assured that my having access to enhancement technology wouldn't uh, involve the cost that five years down the track people got access to a technology that rendered me obsolete, then yes, I think we, we could proceed with caution. But I think as a regulatory policy that will be harder uh, than, I mean, in fact, you know, one thing you might think is that the consequence of a ban would just be to slow things down. And that, that's sort of what people think about technology diffusion anyway. Um, yeah, certainly, I think, I think we should resist becoming obsolescent in this sort of very radical way I've described. How to do that 
yeah, there's some further discussion there. Okay, Jane, I've got you down at the bottom of the list now. So we've got quite a lot of questions, um, so maybe short questions and short answers. I think we'll make you do it next. So the, the problem of enhancement that you described seems to arise from a combination of a cultural value being placed on some quality um, combined with the fact that realising that value through enhancement means that the individual who realises it becomes obsolete in the case of certain enhancements. Um, it seems like the same point applies to other things, well, things that aren't enhancements, sort of more mundane things. So, um, so for example, there's sort of huge cultural emphasis on being physically attractive, um, with the result that sort of lots of people who have lots of qualities to offer that are more, you know, are going to be more important than being attractive, are kind of rendered obsolete, at least in certain respects, by the time they reach a certain age. Um, another another example, I guess, is the fact that society places a value on um, watching professional sports, and you know the, the the life of the professional sportsman or sportswoman is quite short. Um, I mean, in these cases, it's not so. It, it doesn't seem if you if you sort of asked how could we? Sorry, I'm not being, <laughs> I'm being very short. I'll try to hurry. Um, if if you asked sort of how we should how should how we should solve the problem in those cases, the answer would not be so clear cut as what you described, because there isn't a sort of clear enhancement to ban. Um, but I guess the answer would be something along the lines of, well, we should all agree not to be attractive, or um, you know, people should agree not to, be, not to try to excel at sports. Um, and those solutions seem sort of fairly absurd with respect right. to those. Yeah, see, I simply don't have that intuition. I actually think that, I mean, and I take it that lots of people do think that our, society, our culture's obsession with youth and beauty actually works to the detriment, detriment of everyone who isn't 16. Uh, and that, that does give you a reason for cultural reform. A world in which it was possible to be 45 and still attractive uh, is a better world in, in which you only get your shot at being attractive when you're between 16 and 20. So... Uh, uh, would that not be a case of, of rather than sort of banning people, or sort of let's all agree not to not to try to be attractive? Wouldn't that be sort of more a case of placing an emphasis on other qualities? Oh, so, I, I mean, I, I I think some people try to make an argument for media regulation on these lines. Yeah, you know, standard feminist argument: let's try to have less emphasis on skinny young women uh, in popular culture, precisely because uh, its cultural effects is to, is immiserating. So, yeah, so the analogy with your case would then be maybe sort of um, a ban on sort of messages about promoting enhancement rather than the enhancements themselves. Um, I'm not sure those cases are precisely analogous because the thing is one doesn't have to try, I mean, well, most people don't have to try to be good looking when they're 16. You know, or at least to be young. You know, we all get to be young. Might you know, get to actually be good looking, but there's a sense in which one doesn't have uh, an alternative there. Whereas the, um, uh, whereas we do have an option about what sort of culture uh, we live in. Uh, similarly, I, I kind of think that if there, if you, if you're wise and you had the option to play professional sport and amateur sport, and you knew, you loved sport and you knew that if you played amateur sport, you'd have a, a playing life of 30 years. If you play professional life, you'd be, you couldn't enjoy what you're doing after three uh, professional sport. I think you, there is an argument there to say, actually, the wise thing to do is choose amateur sport. I mean, in practice, people don't do it because of the money. Uh, but yeah, I think actually those are good examples where I, I think you can mobilise an intuition. You know, 
stick with the amateur stuff because you'll be able to enjoy it for a long time. Right, if we're going to cut this interesting discussion off now, so we can get more questions. Okay. Um, Angus? Yeah. Uh, so it seems like uh, your argument uh, makes uh, age matter more than wealth in most uh, versions. You have a version where it might be that everybody just can afford one, but that, that would suggest that Bill Gates would be able to afford at least two or three announcements. But leaving that case aside, if it actually is because you can only do an upgrade once, then that seems to actually have a big social equality factor. Because the great fear of a lot of people who argue against announcement is that it's going to entrench social inequalities and then make them part of our genome or something like that. In this case, well, Bill Gates' kid, uh, well, and, uh, some slightly younger <coughs> kids are going to grow up a bit even more out. So it's actually going to increase social mobility and flexibility, which might actually be a price worth paying, even though Bill Gates' kid might be a bit unknown. Yeah, no, no, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's simply the. I was kind of, uh, just for the sake of argument, presuming that everyone would have access. In fact, I think those two problems compound, compound each other. I, don't, I think it's true. It'll be age plus living in California. Uh, so, um, yeah. And um, I guess what I think, what, I mean, one, thing, one truth there is that what we were doing is we're adding generational to the exist generations. Think of this as a new axis axes, axis of inequality uh, being created. At the moment we've got sort of class, race, uh, sex, uh, uh, and to a certain extent age. Okay, but generation or age will become, much, you'll get much more radical inequality across generations. And again, I think there's just a reason to resist that. Uh, but I was just presuming for the sake of argument that everyone would have, have access and in fact that's unlikely to be true. Stuart? Um, yeah, I was... Um wondering if it would be so bad to have two or three years of peak capacity. Um, because I'm wondering why nowadays we tolerate only 20, 30 years of peak capacity. Um, I definitely would like, like a lot more than that, and most people would. But we seem to tolerate it because we've sort of adapted mm. to it. So if it went down to two and three years and society adapted to it, would we still perceive it as being so bad, or would that just be, well, it's regrettable, but that's how things are? Yeah, I, look, I, I think it, um, I think there's lots of situations where you're confronted with a change that you know that when it occurs, you'll be happy with it, uh, but you still have a reason to resist it. So I think it's true. Maybe, I mean, maybe everyone just thinks this is what life's like. You know, I've got my three years at the top, and then I've got to, you know, live in slums for the rest of life. That's just life. Uh, and maybe they wouldn't spend much time regretting it. Uh, but if I'm now considering moving into that world, I have a reason to resist it. Uh, yeah, and I may well have a reason to resist, um, a reason to regret uh, past changes. But yeah, it's simply not the case that because in the future you'll be happy with some particular change, that you now have a reason to endorse it. Yeah, uh, so I guess I have a lot of different thoughts here. It's, it's a very interesting uh, point. I'll focus maybe on what, what Stuart had just said about whether, whether this is really so bad. So here's one reason that it might not be. So you talk about obsolescence. Obsolescence does sound bad. And I agree that in our current society, these cases of obsolescence, you know, people are older and <coughs> don't have multiple capability, it seems like they're in a bad situation. And maybe we should avoid this. But maybe that's just a framing issue. So what if instead of we, in this imaginary society of this two or three years of productive life, we thought of it this way? Okay, you have. 18 years or whatever of education, two or three years of massive productivity with, with massive compensation, and then a lifetime of retirement. 
Um, and, and the idea would be that you would afford the retirement because of the massive amount of money that you made in those two or three years. And because the economy is presumably so much more efficient, that's the way it would happen. And if you're worried about people spending improperly, maybe you want to have a big social insurance program that has massive taxation of these uh, two or three years to ensure that you retire on a good income. And actually, personally, I mean, that actually sounds like a nice deal. Um, if I worked really hard, but you know, I was enhanced, maybe a bit easier for two or three years. And then I got to you know, relax and a moderate income for the rest of my life. Okay. I, I guess I simply don't see obsolescence as being like retirement. I mean, I, I think that, in fact, uh, you know, one might imagine not being able to access most, I mean, more like being homeless, as, essentially. Think about the way in which people are homeless today. Uh, to be homeless is not just to be living on the streets, but when it comes to, you know, uh, trying to get back into the property market, you don't have a mailing address, you struggle to... Uh, to maintain regular social relations with people. So I, I, my worry is it would be more like becoming homeless. Uh, now, the fact that one has savings when one starts being homeless uh, isn't, uh, in most cases, isn't enough. Uh, but I guess I'm also not sure that we would have massive wealth as a result of... I mean, think of wages are essentially a, a sort of... They're a positional good. Okay, so it's so, you know, I suspect enhanced cafe wages would still be paid fifteen dollars an hour, uh, but once they were twenty-five, they'd be sacked because they could no longer, you know, do the right telekinesis to lift the cup. So, um, so it's, you know, and I, so I don't think that people would necessarily. The entire next generation has this enhancement, or a big chunk of it, in a society where this is taking place. I'm not going to. Spend. I guess I would pay more for one of those people relative relative to the previous generation, uh, but I'm not convinced they pay enough to support them in retirement for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I, I mean, there is some sort of complex economics there. My suspicion is that this is a bad thing. Well, I mean, banking is one example of this, where it's a young young person's game, and they're only there for a few years. They work long hours and make a huge amount of money. And then they just, you know, spend down over there. Now, your argument seems to be one well, but there could be social inequality, and that would be really terrible with people on the streets, but there's lots of causes of social inequality. We can have a stroke, we can, you know... Uh, yeah, they're all bad, though. I mean. That's right. So, <laughs> exactly. So the, the, the argument is, well, we should have some sort of protection against radical social inequality um, of any cause. And, you know, it doesn't seem that to, to necessarily follow, as some were saying, that this is... You know, ineluctably linked with right. kind of radical social Okay, I mean we have to be careful with the mode of argument which says we're, we are living with something bad therefore we shouldn't object to more things like this and that, that's often a feature of people's uh, response to these kind of scenarios you, you say look um, yeah, we've already got inequality so there can't be anything wrong with inequality um, actually because for the same reasons that we should be working against inequality now, we should be resisting uh, uh, future inequality. Now, I mean, if the counterexample is simply... I agree, in a society where this was happening, the need for social security to look after the absolute people would become uh, extremely pressing. So, yes, were we to arrive there, you, you shouldn't simply say this is the way that, you know, hypercapitalism goes. You should, in fact, try to put a social security network in place. However, I suspect that the costs of doing that uh, would actually be much higher 
than our current social security network. I mean, some of these people wouldn't be able to log on to the neural net, you know, or they're only living 120 years when everyone else is living to 300 years. And if our social, our social security institutions are premised on a life of 300 years, you know, the older people who only have 120 years are actually going to be quite expensive to look after. Uh, so I do think there are some reasons to think that the demands on a social security system, if society looked like that, would actually be higher than our current social security. Johnny? Hey. Uh, thanks for the talk. Very interesting. Uh, a couple of thoughts on your worry about whether these rapid enhancements would intensify social competition. So um, one thought I had is that, well, maybe uh, sufficiently advancing people's cognitive capacities wouldn't have uh, the effect that you think it might do because there are other aspects to um, how people fare in competition. So you might think that uh, the knowledge you gain from experience uh, might have some bearing on how you fare in social competition. So something like medicine would be an instance of that where people who might have higher cognitive capacities who are younger don't necessarily have the experience you need to bear with medicine. And also um, the means in where there's an established hierarchy who's in charge of kind of figuring out who gets the right positions who might not be enhanced and then have a motivation not to put the enhanced people in place. Uh, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, maybe. I guess imagine that the amount of time that a surgeon can stay in theatre uh, goes up by 10 hours every five years. You know, so yes, you've got some experienced uh, surgeons out there, but they simply can't do the operations that the younger people can. So, I mean, it's not that I, not that there mightn't be some. Uh, I, I, I want to concede that these enhancements would involve absolute benefits. Okay, so people genuinely would be more intelligent than we are now. It's just that they would also be significantly less intelligent than people who were five years uh, younger than them. And then it is. I mean, it's a complex sort of matter of fact, whether the advantages you gain from being more intelligent or having more experience outweigh the disadvantages that you simply can't get a job anymore because they all require doing, you know, 12 dimensional geometry and you simply can't, uh, can't cut it. So yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, all of these, this is a speculative, uh, it's a speculative future. But interestingly, what it relies upon is, a, is an implicit claim about technological progress that people aren't paying much attention to at the moment. What, what, the enhancement debate as it currently exists, everyone assumes that they're going to be at the cutting edge. Okay, but if you thought seriously about some of these enhancements, you wouldn't. You'd be at the cutting edge momentarily, and then for the rest of your life, you would be seeing younger people doing uh, I'm just puzzling about what is special about enhancement in these arguments. Um, I remember the, the Global 2000 report to the President pointed out, among other things, that old people now had a particular problem because they used to be these sources of wisdom and knowledge, mm -hmm. and now they're just becoming obsolete because technology has overtaken what yeah. they knew. Um, and I'm not sure that this is a very different issue apart from the speed and also there are masses of things that happen just in general and once you're the beneficiary of them that enhances your position so you can get more and more so these rat races go on all the time so I wonder what's special about the enhancement and I wonder if it's partly that it isn't just an incidental byproduct of something else that's going on. It's something that you're only has as an end of itself. And therefore, 
it gives it a special kind of um, psychological status. The other question I was wondering was whether you thought, in your scenario, you'd have more chance of an agreement for collective action because every individual could see that they would suffer um, in the foreseeable yes, future. Yes, yes. So the answer to the last so bit is... So that wouldn't make it more, more significant from the point of view of the effects, but it might alter the motivation. Right. Well, certainly yes to the last part. I simply mm. think that you, you, everyone could see that they would spend mm. most of their life uh, in a terrible situation, uh, even though they'd get um, a momentary advantage. Uh, I, I guess... So two things that I think are different with enhancement. One is simply the pace. I mean, it's true that we that are all... That applies to everything. That applies to these phones that you're talking about. Yes, but they're not... Okay, but the, so the other thing is the extent to which it's a matter of... Uh, because it's a matter of one's sort of biomedical constitution, one can't adapt. I mean, I can, tr I can learn how to use the new phones. Yes, but uh, Okay, but I can't... Them. Sorry? You can't buy them if you're not rich enough. No, 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 so no. That, the that's same problem there. Well, there's, there, problems of inequality will continue to exist. But the, the point is that if where we, if in my genes I am simply inferior and incapable of doing things that people are five years younger than me, I mean, I can struggle to catch up, and maybe I'll be able to achieve some of that through education. Uh, but at the moment, uh, because most of our enhancements are essentially external, upgrading is much easier. Okay, I can I can upgrade my phone. That's what we do. Once I implant, this is why people aren't implanting their phones. Okay, it seems to me if you, why haven't all the MIT Media Tech people started implanting, you know, implanting their phones? Well, because it's pretty obvious that whatever you implant will have to come out in a few years. Uh, there, there are reasons to keep technologies external because that makes it easier to upgrade. But some of these technologies we won't be able to upgrade, and I think that's what makes them different. Okay, sorry for the last few questions, but we have run out of time and maybe we can catch up on afterwards. So just on your prediction that, that people will vote against these sorts of enhancements, there was a study of Olympic-level athletes a number of years ago, <laughs> and they were asked, you know, if, if there was a performance enhancer that would guarantee that you would win, but it would kill you in five years, 50% uh, of them would take it. So yeah. at least we can predict 50% of people will buy into it. Yeah, that's, that's the wrong sample, though, Julian. <laughs> 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 Olympic athletes are unrepresented. Okay. Uh, um, our next speaker is Chris Gingell from, from ANU, and uh, you have an enhancement. I do. I just want to start by thanking Julian for organising this uh, double seminar enhancement. Um, Excited to be able to speak to you about some of the work I'm doing as part of my PhD. Um, and also thank you to Rob for a very interesting um, first part of the second order enhancement. So like Rob, I'm going to speak about some possible risks of certain types of enhancement technologies. The enhancement technologies I want to speak about are ones that will allow parents to select specific genes for their children. Now, we know that parents can already sort of affect the genetic makeup of their sort of future children. They do this right now through sort of screening techniques and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, but it's plausible in the future that the power to manipulate the genes of the children <coughs> will increase and they'll be able to yeah, have quite precise technologies and be able to select particular genes for their children. And it's these types of enhancements I'm going to talk about today. So whenever I think... Um, the ethics of these types of technologies come up, so I'll call them genetic engineering technologies. 
Um, I think there are two sort of separate questions that um, are generally discussed. The first is sort of assuming parents have access to genetic engineering technologies, how will they use them? So this really um, comes down to what are the obligations of parents um, in relation to these technologies? What type of traits should they be trying to achieve for their children? Um, Julian's principle of procreative beneficence is a very sort of influential response to this first question and it's um, generated a lot of debate. Um, I want to focus on a second question, which I take a related but sort of distinct, is um, what are the sort of obligations of states in relationship to these technologies? So assuming the existence of genetic engineering technologies, how will states regulate them? Um, and in relation to this second question, I think a sort of popular model um, is the genetic supermarket. So this idea was first introduced by Nozick, um, and it was sort of developed more by Peter Singer. Um, and the name of it gives you a general idea about what this model takes. It's that genetic technology should be regulated in a very similar way we um, regulate other types of technologies. I've got a quote from Peter Singer there. In a free society, all we can legitimately do to make sure that the, all we can legitimately do is to make sure the process consists of freely chosen individual transactions. Let the genetic supermarket rule, and not only the market, but also altruistic individuals or voluntary organisations. Anyone who wishes, for whatever reason, to offer genetic services to anyone who wants them, and is willing to accept them on the terms that they are offered. So. Just talk about two sort of fundamental features of this model. So the first is um, there is a wide access to genetic enhancements. And you can distinguish this from the current regime. So I'll just talk a bit about what I mean by that. So as I said before, parents can already sort of affect what genes their future children will have by sort of screening techniques and pre to genetic diagnosis. Um, and in many jurisdictions around the world, um, parents are able to access these services to prevent their future children from having <coughs> um, diseases but they can't use it to influence sort of non-disease traits. So in Australia and Great Britain, parents are able to use sort of screening services to prevent their children from having cystic fibrosis, but they can't sort of do things like increase the height or intelligence of their future ch children. So this is often sort of justified as this idea that there's maybe a moral difference between disease, treating disease and enhancement. Um, but I think that this, um, this definition has very sort of problematic for a number of reasons. A lot of authors have pointed to problems with it. First of all, it's just a practical difficulty sometimes. It's very hard to um, know if a particular gene is going to be, should be considered as disease treatment or enhancement. But I think a more fundamental difference is there's really not a strong argument for why the disease sort of therapy distinction should be morally significant. And I think there's arguments that suggest that it's not morally significant. Um, the best of these is to, that the best way to think about sort of disease and health are as instrumentally valuable goods. Having a disease is not bad in and of itself. It's only bad because it makes your life tend to go worse, and vice versa for health. It's not good in and of itself. It's only good because it allows you to achieve high levels of well-being. Um, but if the goodness of sort of health and the badness of disease is sort of um, only instrumentally valuable, then it makes this sort of disease enhancement uh, distinction look a bit arbitrary. Um, some enhancements will likely um, increase well-being more than some diseases, so if that's why we only care disease about effective well-being, it just looks like an arbitrary distinction. Um, so I've just got another sort of fundamental sort of feature of the genetic supermarket model there is that so the individual makes selections, decisions, parents are free to go and use the market or not use it in any way they see fit, 
And you might be able to distinguish that from sort of earlier eugenic practices, which were more coercive. There was a more state sort of um, role in sort of making sort of selection decisions. And so I've got there the two main benefits of the genetic supermodel as I see it is that it sort of promotes the liberty of parents. Often um, we think that we should only sort of prevent people from accessing certain technologies and things if we put a good reason for it, and that might not be the case in sort of current regime. And I think it's also an instrumentally good model if we care about collective well-being. And this is through um, sort of the idea of experiments in reproduction, which again Julian sort of uh, alluded to in one of his papers. So if we think that the genetic determinants of a good life are largely unknown, as they probably are, you might just think that parents are the best place to make <coughs> decisions about what genes will increase well-being in their sort of children. So by giving parents this wide access to these enhancements and by letting them make free choices, this might just be an instrumentally good way of sort of promoting well-being. So, I think the genetic supermarket is a really good model for how we should regulate this, these technologies. It's a model that I sort of approve of and I, and I like. But I think we can still have sort of some discussion about what type of market should it be. How free of a market should, be, should it be there? What should the role of the state be within it? Um, and in this sort of light, I think there might be some risks of a completely free genetic supermarket, and these risks might need to be mitigated in some sort of ways. So the risk I'm going to talk about as some sort of um, risk that Rob also touched on is that collective action problems will arise. So the combined result of individuals using a genetic supermarket to pursue self-interested gains or goals may have a negative effect on society as a whole. Um, I'm just going to look at three potential classes of genetic enhancements that sort of may lead to these collective action problems. Uh, these are the ones targeting height, uh, targeting innate immunity, and targeting certain cognitive traits. All right, so I'll start with height. Um, now, the idea that genetic enhancements targeting height leads to collective action, pro collective action problems has been made sort of many times. Many authors refer to this particular risk. And actually just at a conference, and, a, and another author sort of referred to this as a possible risk of some um, enhancement technologies. The general argument goes like this. Um, a lot of empirical research suggests that heist is associated with a range of measures which affect well-being. Taller people apparently go on to make more money than their shorter equi equivalents. They're more attractive to the opposite sex. They also have increased general health. So the idea is that, well, many parents, if these enhancements are available in the market, They'll use them to increase the height of their children. It'll be very popular. We'll all get taller sort of children. So the first problem with that, you might think, well, it's a bit self-defeating in this way. If a lot of people are using these technologies, um, each individual's relative, um, relative height would stay more or less the same, um, but the absolute height would increase, so you wouldn't get the sort of benefit. Um, but there might even be sort of these negative effects of increasing absolute height like this. Um, Taller people consume more resources. So if we have a significant sort of impact on absolute height, this might have these you know, negative effects for, um, you know, cost more to transport people on planes because they're all poorer and heavier. Everyone will eat more food, so it'll be this sort of resource sort of risk. So that's how the general sort of argument goes for um, these particular class of enhancement. Now, I think we have reasons to doubt whether height poses a genuine collective action problem. And the first one of these is that if you look at the actual data about happiness and height, you'll see that it's not independently associated with happiness in women. So um, 
Taller women do say that they're happier, this is true, but as I said, height is correlated with this range of, other, range of other sort of measures that affect well-being. A lot of these are economic and health impacts. Um, so what could be going on is some independent variable is both affecting the future height of people, but also having an influence on these other sort of measures. So for instance, if you have a sort of illness in childhood, you might think this will impact your sort of future height because it's you know, in a developmental stage, but it might also have long-term health and cognitive um, consequences for you. And indeed, when you sort of really look at the data, you'll find that once these other factors, these economic and health factors are controlled for, um, taller women aren't more happy than shorter women. It just makes no sort of difference with the happiness. Um, but the story is more complicated um, with men. So if you look at sort of young men, even if you control for all these other variables, apparently just being slightly taller than your peer group makes you happier. Now, I think this bit ashamed it makes males look like a bit of a shallow sex in this sort of regard. Um, but fortunately it doesn't happen through all our lives. It's most pronounced in young men and it completely disappears by that time you're 40. So I guess by that age you've gained enough wisdom, you've got more perspective on the world and you just think it's not that important that I'm taller than other people who are around me. Okay, but you know, there, there does seem to be, you know, there may be a general incentive for parents of male children um, to increase the sort of height of their, of their children if they had access to these technologies. I think that's probably true. Um, you know, parents of male children would probably, a lot of them would try to have slightly taller um, male children. But we might think that they'll only do this to a certain extent. It seems like a cap um, on really sort of extreme heights. And that's because there are health consequences associated with being very, very tall. So being very, very tall means you're more likely to suffer from heart disease, for instance, because the heart has to work harder to pump the blood to all your extremities. There are also health problems that actually arise because it takes longer for your nerves to go from all your extremities up to the sort of central nervous system. So I think if we consider all these reasons together, I think we do have good reasons to doubt whether height, or genetic enhancements targeting height, would be a genuine collective action problem. For starters, not everyone will have reason to increase height in their children. Um, and secondly, those that do would only be to a certain extent. So I think it just seems unlikely that the combined effect of this would have this negative effect on resource use that it's sometimes thought out to be. Um, I, so I just don't think that it would happen to an extent where it would be sort of worse for everyone in a population. Or at least the consequences wouldn't be so pronounced that it's a significant sort of problem. <coughs> So, I think a better example of a potential collective action problem could result from enhancements that target um, <coughs> aspects of innate immunity. So, um, immunodiversity or diversity in the genes that code for the components of our immune system um, is going to be very important for many populations of other animals and has been historically very important for humans. For a population, you want individuals who are not just resistant to the current disease threats in their environment. You want to have um, individuals who are resistant against a range of disease threats because disease threats change very quickly. And if you're all sort of resistant just against one or two, as soon as things change, the whole population will be sort of worse off. So we just know that populations generally are more robust and resilient when they have this sort of immunodiversity. So there's a risk. <coughs> that in the genetic supermarket, maybe only a fairly specific set of immune genes will be viewed as the most popular for parents. 
And the combined action of parents just choosing these particular genes for their parents would lower immunodiversity. And this has the sort of potential to make us all worse off. So I'll give you sort of an example of a gene where I think this may sort of occur. So the CCR5 gene, it codes for receptor on our white blood cells and provides strong protection against transmitted HIV. It makes you more resist very resistant to these particular strands. Now I think um, this type of gene would be very popular and it would be very popular even in populations where HIV is only a minor threat. So I'll just take my native Australia as an example. I think if you gave parents right now the option or we can give you a child this gene which makes them resistant to HIV, my feeling is a lot of them would take it. A lot of them say, yeah, sure, there's no known downside. HIV resistance sounds really, really good. Um, but in Australia, HIV is a really, really minor threat to people. I think it's less than 0.1% of chance to actually contract HIV. So you might think that if lots of parents did this and chose their genes for the children, it would make the population possibly worse off because there's potential for that gene to predispose people to a later um, disease. And we do know that some genes which do provide protection against some um, diseases do make you more susceptible to others. It's the DARC gene, which provides protection against malaria, but makes individuals more susceptible to HIV. So it's not you know, unlikely that the genes might have this dual sort of effect here. So I think um, this could be a case of a sort of genuine collective action problem. However, um, I'm remaining open to it. We, remain open to the thought that it might not be so significant by the time we actually have a genetic supermarket um, you know, uh, on board. The reason is, as I said, immunodiversity has been uh, very important to other populations of animals. Historically, it's been important to humans, but it's becoming less and less important. We're finding much better ways of fighting disease. And, um, and you might think that we're, as we don't need our sort of innate immunity anymore, um, by the time that we get the genetic supermarket, it just wouldn't be you know, a real big factor. And for example, I think right now they are trying to develop drugs that sort of have a similar effect of that CCR5 gene that I said. So I think there's a potential collective action problem here, but I do think that it's just not clear if it's going to be significant sort of going forward. So we'll turn to my last sort of class of enhancements, which I think could, could lead to collective action problems. And that's ones that target certain cognitive traits. Now, my personal feeling is um, these are the most likely to lead to significant collective action problems that we might want to do something about. So a lot of this idea stems from work that shows that cognitive diversity is really important for the collective ability of groups to solve problems. Basically, cognitively diverse groups, you bring different perspectives and different heuristics to problems, and these can combine to produce sort of synergistic effects to make groups much better at solving problems collectively. Um, there's also evidence that cognitive diversity improves productivity. Different types of minds excel at different types of tasks, and this can sort of help reduce benefits by the division of labour. And there's also evidence that cognitive diversity can contribute to um, increased innovation. So the risk is, if many, individual if many individuals use cognition-targeted GETs in similar ways, then this could reduce cognitive diversity, and the combined effect of this reduced problem-solving ability may make us all worse off. Now, I think for many cases, we wouldn't expect this to happen. Right? We, uh, we, people have diverse preferences. We normally expect people to make very different choices and to use probably very genes in very, very different ways. It's like very, very different genes for their, for their children. 
But you might think there are some preferences that are common to a large portion of parents. Um, for instance, we think that most parents probably want their children to be very happy, or to have happy, happy lives. Um, and there are some empirical studies to support this. So um, in a US study, it looked at sort of asked our large group of parents is what do you want from, what do you expect from your teacher? Um, what's the sort of best sort of goal you want to have the teacher for your children? And most of them said um, that they want their teacher to contribute to their child's happiness. They want their teacher to have, for them to have happy children. And this was a more important goal than academic performance. So I think if this is true and if parents sort of share this preference, we might expect some selection to occur against genes that make children less likely to be happy. Um, and if these genes also reduce a valuable type of cognitive diversity, then I think there's the potential for them to make, to make us all worse off. So I'll just give two sort of examples where this might happen. Um, the first is um, genes that would predispose individuals to depression. So as we know, these um, genes can be sort of quite common in our populations. Um, being depressed, so obviously nearly by definition, seems to make you sort of less sort of happy, and it can make sort of your life harder, and obviously being a parent of a child predisposed to depression can be harder for the parent as well. But there's a range of research um, to indicate that um, people with a depressed attitude of life um, have these valuable cognitive abilities. So in his book, Daniel Kahneman, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, it makes the point that when you're um, less happy, when you're more sort of depressed, you can, you're more likely to question assumptions of things that are around you. You're less easily to be misled. Apparently, um, slightly depressed people make much more reliable eyewitnesses than uh, happy people. And um, there's also evidence that people who are more depressed have increased sort of analy analytic sort of skills. People who are more prone to depression um, sort of tend to ruminate on sort of problems for long periods of time. Um, and this, yeah, can increase their sort of analytic ability. I guess you get the sort of feeling of the struggling artist who's just never quite happy with their work and they keep trying to improve and improve and improve. So I think if there was sort of selection against these sort of particular genes, then that could potentially reduce a valuable type of cognitive diversity. And this may have sort of negative impacts um, for society as a whole. The other one I'll give here is um, introversion. So um, extrovert, being an extrovert is also very reliably associated with increased sort of subjective well-being, subjective happiness. Um, and for these reasons, you might think that parents might prefer to have a sort of happy, sort of extroverted child than sort of a quiet, sort of introverted one. But again, you might think that the spectrum of extroversion, introversion is a valuable one, and that you want to keep a certain diversity of these traits because extroverts and introverts might excel at our tasks. So, you know, I take it, I think cognitive traits, that, that is a potential sort of collective action problem. I, I, I take it that these are all empirical questions, and I'm not pretending that I know all the answers here, but I think they might be important empirical questions as these technologies um, become further advanced. Um, I want to shift now to not so much talking about um, the empirical case, but just assuming that there are um, collective action problems, that they will arise. And what are the implications for this? Um, and I think, you know, I think I've got a very intuitive feeling that, you know, if we knew that collective action problems were likely to arise in the genetic supermarket, 
Um, this would be a good justification for states to um, restrict access to these in some particular way. Um, in other markets, a collective action problem can be seen as a type of market failure, where the market isn't doing a great job of distributing the goods, and that can be seen as a justification for some type of regulation. Um, but certainly, I think some writers would sort of deny this. Um, some, some authors in the enhancement literature would say that we shouldn't really um, restrict individual liberty to promote these broader sort of social goods. So the example I'll just give is um, John Harris. So in his book, um, Enhancing Evolution, Harris sort of argues that, well, we shouldn't um, restrict, we can only restrict access to technologies if they're going to result in these clear and present harms and not in future and speculative harms. Um, and I just take it that I don't think that is a good way to sort of regulate a sort of uh, a market like the genetic supermarket. Um, I just think Harris is wrong that we shouldn't restrict liberties um, owned in, in cases of future and speculative risks. Um, if the consequences of the future and speculative risks are significant enough, and to prevent them, we only need to make these really quite minor sort of restrictions on liberties. That seems a, a good thing to do for me. Um, and the example I sort of have, here, have in mind here is something like climate change. A lot of people would describe the risks that climate change has posed as being sort of future and speculative. But nevertheless, given the consequences would be significant enough, I think we'd be justified in um, restricting people's uh, liberty somewhat to, uh, to prevent these sort of consequences. So the last thing I'm going to do is just sort of relate what I've been saying about collective action problems to what's sometimes a more general argument that's offered against sort of genetic engineering technologies for humans. And this is what I call the diversity argument. So in its really strong form, the diversity argument would say that, well, a massive risk of these technologies is that they're going to destroy human diversity. Um, we're going to become like biological monocultures that are all just exactly the same. And this is going to make the species much more likely to go extinct as sort of particular threats come up that we can't, that we can't meet. Um, and I think why this argument is implausible, it's implausible in its strong form. Um, first of all, I just don't think we would expect um, genetic engineering technologies to reduce diversity on this massive scale. As I said, generally people are, are really diverse. They have these diverse preferences and they would use these technologies in different ways. Um, the second reason why it's sort of implausible is this is not the case that all types of genetic diversity are valuable. We want really low diversity in a lot of genes that we have. You don't want much diversity in the genes that allow you to sort of um, respirate oxygen, for instance. Any diversity in that is likely to lead to serious sort of damage for you. Um, but I think if we sort of think about diversity, um, we can sort of um, use it as a way to sort of point to risks. So the way to sort of um, explain the sort of challenge of diversity that populations face is that they need to balance these two sort of things, which is the exploitation of successful genes and good genes and exploration <coughs> of new genes that might help in future environments. So if you over-exploit certain genes, um, you start to lose of adaptive genetic diversity, and if conditions change, um, you're going to be worse off and you're not going to have a deal with it. But if you over-explore um, certain genes, and you've got too much diversity, and you don't increase the frequency of good genes, you're not going to adapt quickly enough to adapt to um, sort of challenges in your environment. And that would be bad as well. So 
the idea is that you sort of need to balance this exploitation and exploration. And different genes have different, and different sort of areas of the genome will have different sort of precise measures where these are balanced. So I said generally um, for um, immune sort of genes where um, the pathogenic threats sort of change quite regularly, you want more of an exploration type balanced, less of an exploitation by balanced. But for other genes, genes that just basic genes that allow us to sort of make energy and synthesize proteins, you want to be exploiting those successful strategies and not have much exploration. So with this in mind, I think what I've been saying about collective action problems, um, you can see that the risk is that we'll over-exploit particular genes if we allow them to be very sort of widely available. Certain genes just might be much, much very popular and they'll be over-exploited and we might lose some valuable types of adaptive genetic diversity. Okay, so um, just to end, I guess the main sort of points I've been saying is that, you know, I think these are open empirical questions where the collective action problems will arise in the genetic supermarket, but I think they're important ones, and I think that we should sort of discuss this more as these technologies develop, because I think, you know, if they arise, this could sort of help us sort of know what type of market the genetic supermarket should be, whether it should be a true free market, or whether there should be sort of some state involvement in sort of restricting or promoting sort of some traits. We have time for all the questions last time, so I'll end this role. Johnny. So I was wondering why you were putting it like the state restricting the market, because it might just be a case of subsidizing diversity. And one reason you might say the state shouldn't be getting in and saying, oh yes, that is a really good gene, let's uh, subsidize that, is of course the fear of uh, some kind of eugenic control. But the state could actually do this in a kind of hands-off manner. For each particular trait, it might actually just subsidize the least popular version of the gene. That would be completely agnostic about what's the best <coughs> or something. It would just uh, subsidize diversity. Yeah, I, you know, I would probably be open to that. As I said, if there's ways to sort of, um, you know, remain diversity, and yeah, you know, I wouldn't. So I wouldn't be arguing that governments should completely restrict options in this case, or completely. You know, I think subsidizing the low ones is a really good way to, to do it, and that would be, you know, what I would sort of argue for as a result of these types of cases. Uh, Rob. Okay, so I can be quick. Three quick points. One, you should check out a population model called Hawks and Doves. So this is uh, describing frequency dependent selection. So, for instance, you might modify your child to be slightly more aggressive than the people around them because they'll get their own way. But then, if they meet other people who are more aggressive, you get negative consequences. Uh, anyway, have a look at Hawks and Doves. It, it's, it's a real problem in this issue. Second, you need some independent way of, of resisting a full-on brave new world. It would be better for everyone if they were genetically modified to suit their social niche. Okay, both total and average utility would increase. So once we start looking at these collective distributions, uh, you need some reason to avoid a, a very radical genetic engineering uh, project to achieve some collective goals. Uh, finally, and, and I've mentioned this before, Say the baseline, uh, say the base level of depression in the community mysteriously collapses. Okay, turns out that there's a geologic phenomenon that is uh, causing depression. It stops. Everyone's born happy. Your argument suggests that we get a net loss of cognitive diversity. Therefore, we should put drugs in the drinking water 
to re restore depression, and that seems like seems implausible that you should that you should uh, ensure that people have genes that cause the individuals to suffer for the sake of the collective good. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Rob. That's uh, really helpful, and I'll get that book off you. Um, that book off you later. And yeah, look, I, I agree that that last point, you know, that does seem like an unattractive sort of scenario. But like, what I would say is that I, I don't want to put um, absolute importance on sort of collective well-being. I just think it should be one sort of goal of states when they're regulating sort of access to technologies. Now, there's probably going to be some permissible ways to promote cognitive diversity and some impermissible ways to do it, right? So a really impermissible way to do it would just be, well, we can kidnap children from their parents when they're really young and we can get them to think in all these strange ways and give them back. That would promote cognitive diversity, but no, I don't think that would be a good thing to do. It would be impermissible because of the other moral constraints on it. So I guess I would want to sort of say that in the one case, not letting parents access a particular technology that lets them select genes for their children is a less sort of imposition on liberty than sort of poisoning their water. It would be an impermissible, one would be a permissible way of achieving the cognitive diversity goal, and one would be an impermissible way of doing it. Um, Stuart. Yeah, just to get back to your um, whole um, supermarket model, um, why do we think the parents are any good at being consumers in it? <laughs> and why do we think the outcome of this would be good at all? Um, because if you want to be a good consumer, generally, um, I get a coffee, I hate it, I don't go back. Um, so we're the best at being consumers for things that are short term and for ourselves. Uh, when we're choosing for our children, we're choosing stuff that's long term and for other people. Um, and we're cutting into an area where there's also so much difference between what we want, what we say we want, and what our children want. Like imagine on obedience, happiness, honesty, and chastity, what we would be prepared to say, what we would choose, what we'd actually want to choose, and what our children would want if they had the choice. Because uh, I'm about to be a father very soon. Um, I think I probably would be better than most people at choosing stuff for my child, but I, I wouldn't be any good at it. <laughs> but you mean you'd be better than nature? <laughs> well, that's a low bar to cross. <laughs> I mean, I just don't see why sort of the market would be the thing, yeah, sorry, thing to be the best <laughs> model to use here. So, uh, yeah. Yep. First of all, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. I've got a little bug myself. So it's a very exciting time. Look, um, you know, uh, so I guess one of your points is, well, generally we give parents a great sort of uh, degree of freedom in how they raise their children, right? So we often think the parents, they might be hyperparenting or developing these bad traits, but we don't, you know, we give them that sort of right to sort of try to imbue those sort of traits in their children. You might think that the genetic supermarket is just extending that sort of right that they already have. Um, you know, we think we have a strong provision against the state intervening, taking children off parents if we just think they're doing a bad job. We need to have really clear sort of cases for that in, uh, in sort of certain cases. Um, and I guess, you know, as sort of Julian was sort of saying too, we've got options here. So one option is to leave it to nature, and I think a lot of arguments are, oh, that can be really bad. You know, we're, we've got limitations due to our evolutionary history, which are, you know, are really bad now because of our environments have changed sort of so much. So we might think that it's a good idea to help our children to sort of change genes in these ways. So one way we can do it is a state-based thing, which is a more eugenic practices where the state chooses. But I think that could be really risky and don't want to do that for one. You know, we think liberty is neither too valuable, we should be we should be protecting. The other thing is that um, the state 
you know, with a state would do it, you think it might do it in a way to lower diversity. We should all have these exact perfect sort of people, and that might be bad. Um, whereas when you get parents to do it, you'll have the different parents have different sort of attitudes mostly, and that they will sort of, you know, it will promote this more sort of free, I guess, more poor, yeah, um, sort of experiments in what will, what will be good. The point was just that since it has all the features of a really bad market, we shouldn't expect all the good things that flow from good markets to come into it. Right. So what so what would things <coughs> we won't expect? Um well that generally well people choose things that make them happy, the people produce the right amounts of well, you know, all the sort of good stuff that flow from markets that everybody tends to get a certain amount of what they want at the prices that they're willing to pay, etc. Um, efficiency. So that's the sort of stuff that we wouldn't be getting. Um, just by making it into a market because it doesn't have the, the features of a good market. Uh, remember that the word market here is, does not necessarily mean uh, an economic market. Um, okay, yeah, well, I was imagining it would be a cost. His, his point was that the parents would might choose to have a child who's obedient and right. chaste, yeah. um, whereas that might not be you know, what is actually you know, good for the child or good for society. They're going to be deficient in lots of ways because they don't pay the price. <coughs> yeah, you, okay. Whereas in a, in a true market, you pay the price for your bad decisions. Right. Uh, I yeah. Look, I think that's a good, really good point with the obedience case. Um, you know, and I think yeah, if that's um, that might be another sort of independent way, I guess that you think you should restrict access to those particular ones. I mean, obviously, we should restrict access choices that we know are going to be clearly bad for the child. Right. I mean, I take it that's sort of a, a different criteria for when we would limit sort of options in the in the genetic supermarket. I mean, I guess my point I was trying to make is there'll be these other criteria where we should limit them too, and that's when they result in collective actual problems. But, yeah, I take it there might be these other good reasons why we should limit parents' freedom in the market as well. So I think, Pac, you in next. Right. Uh, I'm trying to argue in an other direction, actually. I'm wondering whether your argument presupposes kind of market failure. Because you mentioned all the parents who choose gene for happiness and reduce genes for depression and so on and so forth. If they are, if those genes are really that valuable, why don't parents choose it at the end? Like if they have option and the market mechanism is kind of balance the diversity at the end of the day. So why would we expect parents to sort of pre-impose yeah. their children's depression? Yes, I think, you know, that's a, a sort of interesting point. And maybe, you know, I think some parents may well choose to do that. Um, but I take it like there's a difference in um, what would be good for you as a parent and your child and maybe even what would be good for that child in a sort of more objective sort of sense, right? So I just take it that, um, you know, it would, it would be very hard for a parent to raise a child who's predisposed to depression. It would be sort of a harder job as them. It would be more stressful. You'd it depends on what culture you come from, right? Like the kind of education method in... China, so to speak, the tiger mom kind of things. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean a certain gene will be chosen. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, look, look yeah, well, I am sort of, I guess, assuming that that type of, um, you know, disposition of parents who want to have each one is a universal thing. And if it's not, then, you know, that's probably, you know, a fair point that we might not expect parents to sort of uh, make these sort of combined uh, decisions. But I would just, yeah, I would just take it, um, you know, there might be other, other cases where this collective action problem might be. Okay, so well, thanks again for another interesting talk. Um, I was going to ask you a bit about this cognitive diversity stuff. Okay. So, um, 
it's going to be arguing that you want to safeguard our current levels of cognitive diversity. And I was wondering, to what extent would you want to maybe increase our collective cognitive diversity? Because it seems that the world's not typically well set up for a large range of cognitive diversity, given our current education policies, at least in the UK. Um, I'm wondering if there might be any limits to that, or if you want to do that genetically, because it seems that there may be some threshold where it's too much cognitive diversity could undermine yeah. collective cooperation or something like that. So I wonder if you have any comments on this. Yeah, uh, thanks. That's a really good question. So yeah, look, I take it that, um, for one thing to say about this sort of level of cognitive diversity that be, um, that will be sort of optimal is that it's going to first of all depend on which sort of cognitive trait. Different cognitive traits will have different levels of sort of optimal um, diversity. Um, it is also sort of change, right? So as sort of technology and things change the sort of cognitive landscape that sort of people do things up, it's going to sometimes you know more diversity is going to be more optimal, and sometimes sort of less diversity is going to be sort of optimal. And um, yeah, now as you will know, I think that one risk of sort of too much cognitive diversity from sort of other sort of technologies and things maybe that it will hamper sort of cooperation and. You know, I think that's why we should be sort of, yeah, also focusing on, you know, ways we can enhance cooperation as well as just cognitive diversity. Rob? Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Another question about cognitive diversity. So, sounds like, I don't know the literatures that you're referring to, but on the picture of cognitive diversity that you're describing, sort of empirical stuff that we know about that, um, the amount of cognitive, cognitive diversity that we have at present, like the natural distribution of cognitive diversity, if you want to call it that, can be, you know, pretty good. Doesn't sound like that's going to be thrown into disarray if we have a small number of really smart people, like smarter than anyone around, like that'll be more diversity of anything. Um, the bad outcome would be if we had a lot of people who were sort of equally pretty smart in the same kind of way or something like that. Um, so if, if, it, if that is the picture, um, I mean, it sounds like thinking other things being equal, it's good for market relations to govern these sorts of choices where the choices become available. Is there any anything in what you presented that gives us the resources to resist a situation like this, where the government decides people can bid for the 100 licences that are you know, issued per year to enhance your child to make them like the super brain, right? And we just put those on, you know, what's, what's eBay or whatever, like a bidding site, and and whoever wants to pay the most can have the smartest kid, but we only issue 100 licenses or something like that. And it sounds like your picture would certainly allow, you don't have any qualms about governments really getting involved and dictating terms about how these market relations would be run. Do, does that sort of picture, you know, solve these problems by your lights? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just answer with I think, yeah, that's something that my model would sort of support in that type of case, as long as there's, you know, uh, a limit <coughs> to how many sort of different types of particular cognition there could possibly be. Um, then, you know, you could do it a number of ways, I think. So one way would be a sort of bidding system, you might think a lottery system or something like that. Or, yeah, but as long as there's sort of ways, I think, to avoid this place where there's everyone has these same sort of uh, you know, traits. So the solutions to collective action problems are not, are, they're not solutions that come from some particular um, ideal about you know, egalitarian solutions to collective action problems? No, I think, yeah, you could be open to how to then solve them. Right, they could be very... Okay, it's just about avoiding really bad outcomes in, you know, utilitarian terms or something like that. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Uh, Rob, you had another point? Yeah, okay, so one thing you should keep in mind is that these debates look very different if we're imagining genetic selection, which is non-person affecting, and genetic modification, yeah. that might be person affecting. Because when you take the genetic scapegoat case, 
everyone else is, ha is happier. The world is much happier if one in a hundred children are born with a life barely worth living. Because every, every morning I get up and say, thank God that wasn't me. I get to be sympathetic. I get to display virtues. My life goes better because I know that there's this poor bastard over there who has a life barely worth living. Indeed, the net impact on the community is to massively elevate total social welfare by bringing these people into existence. And we just we choose them by lottery. So, parent. Now, if that's a non-person affecting choice, that child, we don't harm anyone bringing that child into existence. The collective benefit is huge. How are we going to resist on your account? Yeah, look, right. So, I mean, I don't have time to go there. I, I'll just make a point that, you know, I'm only thinking about person affecting sort of ones in this particular case. So, I take it that when you take genetic engineering technologies, um, you can, you know, at least plausibly for a class of doing internals, you can do them after implantation. So, you're not changing which embryo is implanted. You could merely be changing the particular genes that that embryo has. And then it's not clear that you're going to have a non identity problem, right? Because you know, take the case of a mother who drinks early in pregnancy. Yeah. Right now, she changes the fetal DNA of that baby and has a worse life, but we don't normally think, oh, she just changed which baby she had. We think she harmed the baby by drinking early. And you could think that genetic, these rather than screening technologies. That, that is the genetic. opposite problem, because a lot of what you want to ensure will then simply be morally impermissible. Because in order to maximise cognitive diversity, I have to harm a certain number of children in order to get them to be depressed enough to maximise cognitive diversity. So that exacerbates the collective action problem. There's a dilemma here because right. if, you, if, you, if you think these are person-affected cases, it's going to look very hard to say, for the sake of the public benefit, you should be depressed. Yeah. Which your yeah. argument seems to, seems to imply. Now, you can do that if, you, you can, if it's a non-person-affecting case. You, there's more room because you can say, look, you've got a worthwhile life even though you're depressed. Yeah. So splitting those cases uh, will be important. Okay, yeah, thanks. I, I mean, I'll just have to think about that a bit more, I think. Oh, and then maybe. Yeah, um, so I, I guess I wanted to wonder why, so this particular, um, you, you contrast your model with the, uh, with the, uh, the um, supermarket model, I guess, right? Yeah. But, but it seems like, I don't know why the supermarket model is, is a good baseline. I mean, shouldn't the real baseline be essentially the current regulatory structure of medical technologies? And, and these are very different from supermarkets. And you, supermarket, you make claims like, oh, these, you know, these candies are really tasty or it's going to make you happy or whatever. But, but, but if you make that claim for a pharmaceutical drug, like an antidepressant, you, you use heavy regulations that are going to be in place, uh, experiments that need to be done to prove these claims. Um, and also there's going to be uh, various regulations on, on uh, side effects and, and, and have to be displayed in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so this is important because I think at least one of the three problems you point out uh, can be um, overcome with this model, and that's the, the middle one, the immunity argument. Because we already have um, this issue with antibiotics, um, where you have overuse that leads to uh, becoming um, the, the strains that then evolve to, uh, to overcome the drugs, and this creates a problem for future treatment. So, so there's so some push to regulate the distribution of some antibiotics in certain circumstances to prevent this kind of Action. And the idea would be that you could have the same sort of thing for enhancement technologies, the same sort of model. <coughs> and you might think that, uh, that this would make it less objectionable, because currently people tend to think that medical, medical regulation is pretty acceptable, um, and, uh, and you know, applying it, if you think that, even if you think there's an enhancement uh, treatment distinction, applying the same model might be a way to get a lot of the benefits you're trying to get 
without maybe running afoul of, of, of libertarian concerns, at least among mm -hmm. the general population. Yeah, look, that's, again, really interesting. Um, well, I just take out, I took the sort of genetics of market just as my baseline, I guess, because, you know, it's just the one I find sort of most intuitively appealing about these ones. So I guess um, how they regulate yeah, so I guess, you know, you could have a, a sort of doctor model, right, where you need to go and get prescribed certain, the, certain access to these technologies for your children. And, yeah, I mean, it sounds plausible way to sort of go about it and maybe avoid some of these problems to me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll just have to, again, sort of think about that in detail. So I, I, I agree with you that collective action problems are a good basis for regulation. But I just think in this area it can be sort of opening a door to abuse and also it, it, it's likely to be unnecessary in many cases because I think eventually the market in a sense will decide and I, and I think, so I really liked your presentation and the height example I think is one that's always trotted out as extremely bad. So say everyone starts to, to choose slightly taller men, I don't know, they're aiming for six foot three or whatever, that's the sort of point. And more and more people get to six foot three, <coughs> which is sort of seen as the idea of height. There'll be, there'll be actually specific local advantages to being shorter than six foot three if you're a male. That is, if you want to do competitive balance sports. So some parents who will want to have a gymnastic son or a skiing you know, champion or a, you know, they will be choosing to have a, a smaller child. Actually that child will <coughs> have a, a big advantage in that society because actually more people will be, yeah. you know, taller. So, you know, provided that you let people kind of play out the different sets of values, there's likely to be a re-equilibration in some ways because you're creating new niches. So with the um, introversion, extroversion one, everyone starts choosing extroverts. But if there are some advantages to having a child who's an introvert, as you said, greater academic performance or whatever, the pressure to have an introverted child starts to increase the more people that have extroverted children because that child becomes a sort of rarer commodity. So in many of these cases, I think there's a kind of an internal compensation Another one that you know you might think is is homosexuality or heterosexuality, so you you might um, try to regulate that because you think well there's going to be this sort of um, you know large imbalance towards heterosexuality in America where you know all the fundamentalist Christians choose that, but provided that you allow people to make their own choices, they'll the people who don't care or may want to have a child who's disposed to being homosexual choose that child and the kind of religious fundamentalists will, will choose the heterosexuals. So I, I agree with you in principle, but I think in many of these cases it's dangerous to start to <coughs> kind of invoke collective action, you know, problems and protection of society, except, you know, where the, you know, someone wants to select, you know, genes for psychopathy, where it's clear that, you know, that's actually going to have harmful social effects. So, I, I mean, why most of these things, if there is some benefit to it, as you're saying, if there is some benefit to depression, um, then eventually people will start to select that kind of benefit as its value rises. If there's no benefit to it, then people aren't going to select it over time. That's the whole idea of experiments over over time. Yeah, well, I think that's thanks, Julian. Um, I think your height. I know that's another good point that you made about heights. That's maybe another case where that might not be a very good collective action problem. And yeah, look, I think, you know, there is the possibility that for the cognitive... Yeah, well, maybe when we've got sort of no sort of introverted people, no people who suppose depression, there'd be such a big advantage for those people that they were because they can do these types. Um, you know, the market would try to correct about 
that I guess one sort of concern you might just have is sort of the opportunity cost loss there, right? You might think that in the generation where you've got none of them and they have they have this sort of controversy that that's sort of at a loss. Now, as you said, you might be able to recover that in the next well, one. Well, you know, take disposition of manic depression, right? It may be that there are people who are disposed to this are also more original, creative and productive, but then some of them go on to develop crippling manic depression. Yeah. So you've got the choice of selecting for these dispositions or just normal, right? Yeah. And, you know, you, your worry is, oh, everyone will start selecting normal and we'll lose this sort of value of this kind of disposition that has bad effects but also beneficial effects. But surely the response to that is just to enable people the kind of freedom and eventually, you know, some people will want to have a child who's going to be the next Van Gogh or whoever. Um, and if we sort of worry that everyone's... Like, people are different. Rob's got all these earrings and I don't have any. You know, and, 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 you know, but, you know, people, you know, people choose to modify their bodies in lots of different ways. And then some people, you know, it's true that many people kind of converge on this beauty norm. But not everyone. <laughs> Some people, you know, try yeah. to turn themselves into a cat. <laughs> yeah, right. your, your view is, well, we need to protect against this sort of stereotype by, you know, stopping kind of uh, intervening in, in, in this process because, you know, everyone's going to want to look like a Barbie doll. Yeah. But, like, I guess I don't, I don't need everyone to do it, right? There might always be exceptions. There might always be some people. But what I say, there's, there's a certain amount of diversity that would be productive for a particular type of trait and given a particular environment. And I don't need it to go completely down. I just need it to be reduced to a point where it then starts having bad collective ability. So even if there are the few parents that would choose the, right. the manic depressive or the introverted, the fact that there would be right. less of them might be sort of a bad thing. So, yeah. But then how do you know that the rate that we have now... Yeah, now it's not to... No, I was going to say. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, Christy, yeah, so, you know, and that's a plausible sort of canary. Though maybe we've got too much now, maybe we've got too little, I agree, we don't, we don't really know. I guess my point would be that there's a risk of a sort of very libertarian model that you then end up with too little, and that just needs to be sort of considered more and seen as a risk. Other questions? Anders? Uh, so, so this might be a relevant point, both of the talks, actually, because both... Besides uh, some empirical questions, there is also this question of how much we can make policy based on our assumptions, how technologies are going to be uh, developed and used in the future. So uh, earlier, uh, uh, Rob's talk was kind of based on that we knew that this was enhancement that you could only do once. But how do we know that? Well, for some kind of enhancement like PGD, where it actually does make sense. But uh, neural implants, that technology might actually change quite a lot, especially in domains where you have very rapid technological development. So it seems to be tricky here to make policies, especially policies in that case that might restrict research that would indeed develop uh, uh, kind of reversible or uh, uh, multiple uh, versions of these enhancements. Similarly, over here, we're trying to think about what predictions can we make about collective action problems. And there are some predictions which I think are relatively easy to do. I think the immune system case is a pretty nice one in that regard. The problem, for example, with cognitive abilities is that smart people generally seem to be having a lot of diversity in their thinking. They might be st all smart in the same fundamental way, but what we're thinking about tends to diverge, and then their opinions go, go in very different ways. It's only when we get to things like manic depression, where you have a particular mode of thinking that uh, might have certain predispositions, where this argument seems to work really well. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a, that's a good point. So um, what you look for when it's all the research on cognitive diversity is it's diverse perspectives and heuristics which sort of give you sort of benefits from that. And it's you know, not a complete link between then some of these other sort of cognitive traits like intelligence stuff to those. But there is some link, right? As you were saying in the manic depressive case, what gives you sort of diverse perspectives and, and heuristics is the experiences that you have when you go through life. And people who are repressed that have that emotional sort of impact when they're doing they're going through life, tend to develop these diverse sort of perspectives and heuristics, and similar with other sort of traits. So autism spectrum might be another one where this sort of applies, where it's just that way of thinking gives you these diverse perspectives and heuristics. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to think that, that you know maybe there are other ways we can um, sort of try to protect this um, cognitive diversity, diversity in perspectives and heuristics um, of people who I guess start out from a more homogeneous base. And yeah, I think that's. Again. So, so there, there was this experiment that, that this genetic <coughs> modification that made lazy monkeys really hard working. Um, and to say that you could do this in humans, and let's say the, the, the lazy kind of humans are quite happy and sort of satisfied, but they're actually quite lazy. And the hard working ones are really obsessive, you know, they work really hard, contribute a lot to society, but are actually quite unhappy. Yeah. Um, so what, what's your, how, how do you think we should... Is I'd, say we want, I'd say we want a balance, probably, of the right, hard working yeah. and uh, happy monkeys. So if too many people are choosing the sort of lazy one, we, we then need to sort of, we need to introduce regulation. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the state would at least be permitted to take actions to promote... Um, right. Either one, I think. Yeah. You, you might also get an alternation. Uh, the the hardworking yes. humans fi find that they don't like their life, so they're going to set, make sure that the kids get the lazy genes. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Do you want to make a last comment? Oh, this is why this phenomenon of frequency dependent selection is so uh, tricky in this context because it simply turns out that there's no, there's actually two cases here. One where what you want is a child with the genetics that's bad for them and good for the community. I take it the depression case is like that. It's bad to be depressed, but it's good for the community that there are depressed people in it. I think that case is harder than you acknowledge because I can't see how you could deliberately impose depression on children for the sake of the, the social benefit. But there's other cases where what you want is a benefit for your child, but whether a trait is beneficial for your child depends upon how many other people have it. Uh, okay, so if lots of people have the trait, you don't want to have it. But if not many other people have it, you do want to have it. And then in each generation, there's simply no answer as to what you should choose because it depends upon what everyone else is choosing. Yeah. And these are particularly tricky collective action problems. It looks as though... And the self-correction mechanism doesn't work in those, uh, in those contexts because the parent has to decide what will be good for my child and it simply depends upon what other people are doing. So. Yeah, I take it. But I mean, for the first point, I mean, I just made a different intuition to you that... Um, there's a, there would be a difference between not letting parents access a genetic technology to pick genes for their children about particular genes depression and then imposing depression on the children. I just think that there might be different sort of risks. Um, and um, yeah, I guess this second point is probably, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I mean, I haven't thought about it too much. Do you give me example of a cognitive trait that's better if everyone has it and so a positive and less good if no one sort of has it? So aggression and passiveness would be, uh, would be a case right. where if in a passive community you want to be aggressive because the passive people back down and you get goods. Yeah. However, in a largely aggressive community, the aggressive people spend so much time fighting that the passive people 
uh, just get on with lives. Right. And this is just modeling mm -hmm. a, like it's a particular evolutionary sort of yeah. situation about predator-prey yeah. uh, relations. And in that case, should my child be aggressive or passive? Well, it depends upon whether they're going to be born into a population of aggressive or passive individuals. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's you know, no answer to the question, what, what gene is best for my child, independently of a given distribution across the rest of the population? Yeah, uh, look, and that's, I mean, that's an interesting case. And I, I think that sort of applies more to, you know, if you were, we're talking about the obligation to parents and what's best for their children, which isn't it, maybe. Because I take it for a state, sort of, they're always best if everyone's passive. Right, so that's what they should be encouraging. But you kind of assume that the state is thinking long term and coherent way. Just because some sort of long term dictatorship would want something to be like that doesn't mean that sort of a, a democratic government who's going to go to the voters in three years and is uh, obsessed about what the Daily Mail will say will be thinking on those kind of lines. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm just trying to take it so the state should be promoting collective, uh, <laughs> collective well-being. Maybe that's naive of me. It's philosophy, not politics, mate. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, we'll let, join me in thanking both speakers for uh, being here.